Good morning. This is our fourth week looking at the book of Habakkuk. And over the past few weeks, as we've looked at this book, we have, we started with Habakkuk. Um, actually, let me stop for a minute. I forgot one thing. I want to ask you for your prayers. Uh, next week, I will be traveling to an assembly up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, to interview uh, as a, for a pastor teacher position that they have open. And uh, so I would really covet your prayers um, as I go and uh, speak with them about this. Um, Jimmy and uh, Rake actually attended uh, this uh, chapel when uh, they were in Michigan for a while. Uh, I understand it's got a flavor a lot like CBC, so hopefully I'll feel right at home uh, there. And uh, I, the, the gentleman I've been speaking with, one of the elders there, is Rake's uncle who married Jimmy and Rekha, so I feel like there's a little bit of a connection already. Hopefully that'll uh, put me a little bit at ease, but uh, I'm looking forward to the opportunity, but also uh, uh, a little afraid, don't know what to expect, and uh, I'm going by myself. Amy's not going to be able to go with me, so uh, anyway, I, I do covet your prayers and ask that you would pray for me and for Amy as we seek to see where God will have us serve him uh, in the future here. Uh, but that being said, let's get back to the book of Habakkuk. And we saw the first week that Habakkuk brings a complaint before God. He says, God, are you not concerned? Are you not watching what's going on? The unrighteous are prospering. You're righteous. Your faithful people are being uh, downtrodden. We're being taken advantage of. Why aren't you paying attention to what's going on here? God answers Habakkuk and says, Oh, I know what's going on. I've been watching and I am paying attention. And let me tell you that I'm going to do something that you would not believe. Even though I'm going to tell you, you will not believe it. God tells Habakkuk that he's going to raise up and has been raising up the Babylonians to come and judge Israel for their sins. They'll be carried off to the land of Babylon. They'll be taken out, taken out of the land that God had promised to them. Habakkuk then says, second uh, questioning of God, he in verse 12 kind of says, well, okay, you are God, you are the Holy One, I guess you have the right to do that, but Aren't your eyes really too holy and too pure to look upon such an evil instrument to judge your people? And chapter 2, verse 1 kind of ends that first section with Habakkuk, after questioning God a second time, sitting on his watchtower waiting for God to respond to him. God responds to Habakkuk in chapter 2, telling him, to record a vision for the people, a vision that they will live by, a vision that will come and it will not delay. It is certain to carry out its appointed task. And in this vision, God tells Habakkuk that the righteous will live by faith as opposed to the proud who see themselves and set themselves up as their standard of justice, who see themselves as their own strength, 
who see themselves as the ones who uh, achieved great things. The rest of chapter 2 is a series of woes in which God warns those in Israel and those outside of Israel who live this way that if you choose to live this way, judgment and destruction is certain to fall upon you. And there's a strong contrast here between how the faithful person or the righteous person lives and the proud person. The faithful person turns to God for all of his strength to live day by day. Chapter 2 ends with another contrast between the false gods that were being worshipped and the one true God who is sitting in his holy temple And God says, let all this earth be silent before me. The earth will eventually be quiet in entire submission before God. And that brings us to chapter 3. And as we heard, this is a prayer of Habakkuk. According to Shiginoth. Shiginoth is a musical term. It is, or as best, as most scholars can figure out, is that it's a musical term that indicates that this song was to be sung to this tune, whatever that tune was. We don't know what it is. But this was a prayer that was to be sung by the people. This is a prayer, I believe, that God gave to Habakkuk to give to the people as they are about to be carried off into captivity. And encounter incredibly hard times. And Habakkuk begins his prayer by saying, I've heard your report. I've heard what you have had to say to me. And I get it. And I fear. Habakkuk, I think, was fearing what was about to come. What was about to befall the people of Israel. It was going to be a a brutal invasion. Absolutely brutal. But yet, Habakkuk says, revive your work. Continue with your work of judgment. Continue with your plan. But in the midst of that, remember mercy. Remember mercy. What is it that Habakkuk can, can base this on? Why can Habakkuk say to God, remember mercy in the midst of your judgment upon your people? I think Habakkuk is thinking back to the covenants that God had made with his people. There will always be a remnant that is preserved. God will not utterly destroy. He will remember mercy. God will remember the covenants that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the covenant he made with David, that there will always be one that will sit on the throne. His house will be established forever. So God cannot completely destroy his people. He must remember mercy. And this leads us into the bulk of the chapter. Verses 3 through 15 are really one of the greatest theophanies in Scripture that we have. 
You think of another one in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah describes the holiness of God. Uh, and you think of other pictures of God acting in judgment uh, in, in Revelation. But this one here is one of the greatest theophanies that we have. God's acting throughout history. And it is a recounting, really, from uh, the beginning of Israel's history up through, uh, many aren't really sure some of these descriptions, where they came from or what they do, what they're describing. Maybe they're describing some of the future judgments that will come uh, in the tribulation period. But it's describing God's work in history. God comes from Teman. Teman is generally considered to be an Edom. And uh, he comes, the Holy One comes from Mount Paran. Mount Paran is another name for Mount Sinai. And so you see here pictured God coming to give His law. And appropriate that He's called the Holy One in giving the law in which He calls Israel to be holy. For I, your God, am holy. His splendors covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand, and there's the hiding of His power. The creation is full of God's glory. And this is a little bit different than what it says in Psalm 19, that the creation declares the glory of God through what is seen. What I think what Habakkuk is telling us here is that when God acts on behalf of Israel in history, His glory is seen throughout all of creation. There is no doubt as to who's acting. And it is, as we'll see some passages later, there are countless passages in the prophets that talk about that God will act and the nations will know that I am the Lord God and that I did this. There won't be any doubt of who is doing the work. Verse 5, pestilence goes before him and plagues come after him. Most likely picturing the trials in Egypt. The ten plagues that were cast on the Egyptians for their ill treatment of God's people. Verse 6, God stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. The perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan under distress, and the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Many take these ancient hills here, these perpetual mountains, as the high places where centers of idolatry were located, especially in the land of Cushan and the land of Midian. The worship of the false gods were centered here. And God comes to survey the earth and these places quake at His presence, knowing that impending judgment is certain to fall upon them. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Was Thine anger against the rivers or Thy wrath against the sea? What acts of Deliverance did God accomplish through a sea or a river? 
Did He not deliver His people through the Red Sea by parting it? Or stop the Jordan River so that the Israelites can go across? He's not mad at these elements of creation. But He's using these elements of creation to deliver His people. God is showing that He is the absolute Lord of all creation. Skipping down to verse 11. Sun and moon stood in their places. Joshua. The sun stood still. I'm glad the sun doesn't stand too still in Texas. (laughs) It's hot enough as it is. I'm glad it goes down every night. Gives us some relief. But how incredible would that be to see the sun just stop at high noon and it doesn't move? People would be just, what is going on? It's amazing what God does. This language is so picturesque, so descriptive of God and all of His power. But for me, when I come to verse 13, I see that as kind of the central verse in this passage. Thou didst go forth for the salvation of thy people, for the salvation of thine anointed. Thou didst strike the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. This is why God intervenes in history. This is what God has been doing with all these mighty acts of nature. God is going forth for the salvation of His people. For the salvation of His anointed. Now, You can take this verse a couple of ways. And I think both are very uh, viable. And I think they're both right. The salvation of thy people. Clearly, that is the people of Israel. That's the context here. God has been delivering his people through all of these acts. But it's interesting, the salvation of thine anointed. Does that sound familiar? Who is the anointed one in the Old Testament? It is Israel, but it is also Jesus. The anointed comes from the word Messiah, the Christ. God has gone forth for the salvation of His anointed one. So which is it? Is it the people? Or is it Jesus? I think it is both. I think here it is the people of God. It is clear in the Old Testament that God has done great things for Israel as a nation and as a people. But we know from the New Testament that the ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. 
And if you want to see some more of this, read the servant songs in Isaiah, chapters 42 to 49 particularly. Isaiah goes back and forth there between the person of Jesus and the nation of Israel. And it's hard to tell what he's talking about a lot of times. I think that's intentional. Because I think he's speaking about both. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these promises, Scripture tells us. And look at this too. is The salvation of thy people. The salvation of the anointed. That can mean God is going forth to provide the salvation for His people. This is going to be the salvation that God gives to them and brings to them. Or if we see this as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, this could be, could be viewed as the salvation that Jesus provides for us. This is the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. And again, I think it's both. God provides a salvation for His people that comes through Jesus Christ. There is no other salvation. And I think it's good to take this as referring to Christ as well. By the second half of the verse, Thou didst strike the head of the house of the evil. Is that not what He does in salvation? Is that not what was accomplished at the cross? Is that not what was prophesied in Genesis 3? You shall bruise your heel, and He shall bruise your head. There's a mortal wound that was struck to Satan the head of the house of the evil at the cross. In essence, he was laid open from thigh to neck. He has not yet completely died from that wound, but he will. We know the end of the story. We know Satan has been defeated. But as I looked at this prayer, I was thinking, this is a great prayer. And there are some great things in here. But what is it about this prayer that should be so encouraging to people that are about to be carried off into captivity? What is it that makes God go forth for the salvation of His people? Why? Does God do this? He didn't have to do it. And Habakkuk sure seemed to think at the beginning of the book that God wasn't doing it. Because he says, where are you? You're not seeing what's going on here? So as I thought about this, we've got to go back to Genesis 15. Turn back to Genesis chapter 15, if you would. This passage in Genesis 15 is such an incredibly important passage. 
in all of Scripture. There's so much that is built off this. Um, this should be a very familiar passage to us. God has called Abram, and he makes two promises to him in this chapter. He promises that he will give Abram an heir, a son will come from him, and from that heir, all the nations will be blessed. And he also promises the land to Abram. But then God does something else. God tells Abram to get a heifer, a female goat, a ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Take all these animals, cut them in half, line them up, and then we're going to walk through these together and make a covenant. And that was the typical way that you would make a covenant. The same way we would make a contract today. Two people come together, you have your terms, and you sign it. This is what is pictured here. But what is unusual about what happens here is that Abraham falls asleep. And it is God alone that passes through those pieces of animal and makes the covenant. Abraham doesn't do it. And God says, this covenant is dependent upon me and me alone. If it's going to happen, I'm going to make it happen. Abram, it's not going to be because of anything you do. The author of Hebrews takes this in chapter 6. Verse 13, and says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you an heir, I'm going to give you the land. He made a promise. Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which It is impossible for God to lie. We may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. The author of the Hebrews explains to us the significance of what happened in Genesis. God gave Abram a promise. And God's word is sufficient to be believed. And it can't be changed. But the author of Hebrews says here, God desired even more to show the heirs of the promise how certain, how guaranteed this was to, ha- this, this was to come to pass. That he 
interposed his promise or added to it an oath. And God swore by his own name. Because he couldn't swear by anything greater. We have a double guarantee. This is doubly secure. Because God has put his own name at stake on the fulfillment of these promises. And as you read the Old Testament... Over and over again, God will say, this is not because of you that I'm doing this. It is because of my name's sake that I'm about to act. Let's look at some of these passages. And he starts out right in Deuteronomy chapter 7. As the people are about to enter the land... Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Familiar verses to all of us. We've heard these before. Verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Turn over just a couple of pages to chapter 9. Verse 5. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. In order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the oath that God swore. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he is doing these things. There's nothing good, inherently good in the people of Israel. God tells them that. But it's because he swore an oath. He put his name, his reputation at stake. That's why the idolatry is such an abomination to God. People pray to these idols for fertility, for success, for economic gain. And they get it, and then they bow down to this piece of wood or piece of metal that they made. They say, God didn't give this to me. You did. That's an abomination to God. Because He's saying, I am giving it to you. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36. I remember the first time I read some of these passages. I was just utterly 
amazed and astounded. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Skip down to verse 28. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Verse 32, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Verse 36, then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. And he ends the chapter. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God wants everybody to know that He is the Lord. That He is in control. He is orchestrating history. People prosper from His good hand. Not from anything else. God is a jealous God. And he says this in Exodus 20, as he's giving them the Ten Commandments. I am a jealous God. There's certain, there's one thing that God will not share with anybody else. And that is his glory. He will not share it with anybody else. Look at a couple of verses with me in Isaiah Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, repeated for emphasis, so there's no confusion. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Turn back just a couple of pages to Isaiah 43. Verse 25. I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who's called by my name. And whom I have created 
Why? For my glory. People could have been could be talking about creation in general, creating the nation, whatever it is. God has done it for His glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I think it is quite clear. I think God is trying to be crystal clear of who He is and who deserves all the glory. Now, why do I go and take this little diversion into emphasizing who God is and why He acts? We go back to Habakkuk, to our passage. I think what we see, I asked, what is it that compels God to go forth for the salvation of his people? God goes forth for the salvation of his people because his glory is at stake. His name is at stake. It is a reputation of God, the God of the universe, that is at stake in the salvation of His people. Because God swore an oath by His own name, telling Abraham that this covenant will be fulfilled. All of the nations in the earth will be blessed by your seed. And God guaranteed that by His name, It wasn't anything that the nation of Israel did or would do or could do. God put his name on that line and signed that contract. God's glory is at stake. And God refuses to give that glory to anybody else but himself. This is why this passage is of such great comfort to people that are going to enter into captivity. It doesn't matter, in a sense, what the people do. This nation has been so utterly sinful. They have wandered from God time and time again. But he has to remember mercy in the midst of his judgment. Because His name, His glory, is at stake. If these people are wiped out and are no more, then God's glory is over. It's finished. And God cannot allow that to happen. God, as the author of Hebrews said, cannot lie. It's an impossibility. I don't, I hope that we don't face the impending judgment that Israel was facing. We might. We will face trials that seem just as dark. 
my sister and her husband, when they lost Courtney, thought it was this dark. She said, God, where have you gone? Do you not see I've been faithful? But yet, she knows the goodness of God rests not upon her or anything that she could do, but the goodness of God rests upon Him and Him alone. His name, His glory. When we get our minds and our hearts wrapped around the idea that God is in the redemption of His people for His name's sake, for His glory, and that it cannot fail, then we can respond as Habakkuk does in the last few verses of this chapter. Habakkuk comes a long way from the beginning of the book to saying, God, where in the world are you? To saying, God, it doesn't matter what happens to me in this life. I can rejoice in the God of my salvation. I can rejoice in the God of my salvation as I'm carried into captivity. As I'm stripped of everything I've ever had and ever known. As I'm carried away into a foreign land that hates God, I can rejoice in the God of my salvation because I know it's secure. Because it's based on Him and Him alone. That's faith. That's living by faith. It's incredible what Habakkuk says. Not only does he rejoice, takes joy in the God of his salvation in the midst of tremendous trials. Verse 19 says, he has incredible strength and confidence as well. I assume that Habakkuk was downcast, was depressed at the beginning of this book. Seeing the unrighteous prosper over the righteous, taking advantage of them. That gets depressing after a while. And you wonder where God is. And while Habakkuk does not understand and can't comprehend how God is going to use a people even more perverse and evil than what Israel was to judge them, he has come to understand through faith that everything that God is doing is for the glory of God. And that is a purpose that can't be thwarted and cannot be changed. It is a purpose that cannot be overcome because there is nothing that God is more jealous for than His glory, than His reputation in the earth. What does that tell us today? We know more than Habakkuk knew. I'm sure when Habakkuk saw this prayer of 
In verse 13, the salvation of thy people, thy salvation of thy anointed. He might have had a glimmer of hope that the Messiah is coming. We know the Messiah has come. Habakkuk didn't know how that death blow would be struck to the head of the house of the evil. We do. We celebrate it every week in the Lord's Supper. Need an interpreter. Think about the promises that we have in the New Testament. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you, He will complete it. Why? Because God's glory is at stake. Ephesians 5 Talking about the body of the church. Christ will sanctify her. So that she can be presented holy and blameless to him as a beautiful bride. Why? Because God's holy name needs to be vindicated. He's promised it. It must come to pass. John 6, Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me, I will lose nothing. And I will raise them up on the last day. Why? Because Jesus loved nothing more than to glorify the Father. And if Jesus doesn't do this, He doesn't glorify the Father. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church. What an encouragement to Curtis. To Orv. And the others that are out there. I will build my church. You will have success in evangelism. Because my name is at stake in this. Not yours. It's my name. 2 Corinthians 3.18 As we behold the glory of the Lord, we will be changed into that glory. We will be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is what will glorify God. And it must happen. All these promises. The glory of God is so central. Revelation 21-23. The glory of God is so central to God. That it is the light that will illumine us for all of eternity. The glory of God is the basis of all of God's promises. Is what guarantees them that they will come to pass. We can say like Habakkuk, gas prices go to $10. Food prices become outrageous. If floods continue to wipe out crops in the Midwest, I don't care. It doesn't matter. 
Because I can rejoice in the God of my salvation. No matter what comes. What else is there to say? What better thing to be able to rejoice in the God of our salvation? Father, we, we are overwhelmed at your goodness to us. We who are so undeserving, we who are so weak, we who are not intelligent, we who are not strong, we are not smart. Yet you have, in all of your sovereign wisdom and love, chosen to set your grace and mercy upon us because of what you promised to Abraham those many, many years ago. That in his seed, Jesus Christ, our Savior, we, all of the nations would be blessed in him. Your word recounts your mighty acts on behalf of your people. You tell us how you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have just lavished us richly through your grace. And it is all to the praise of your glory. Father, help us to learn from Habakkuk that we can always rejoice in the God of our salvation, that we can always have confidence in you. Help us not to be distracted by our circumstances around us. Help us not to be dragged down by them. Help us to see with the eyes of faith past all of that to you. To see how you are working and coordinating history to redeem a people to yourself for your glory for your honor, for your praise. Father, we thank you that you are gathering us together, that you are sanctifying us, that you are glorifying us, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, making us righteous, holy, and blameless, so that we might be able to worship you in all of your glory for all of eternity. What a joy! What a privilege that is. May we ever be mindful of that. Help us by faith to always cling to you, to trust you in the direst of circumstances or in the greatest of gain. May we always give you all of the glory and all of the praise for everything that you are for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is by His name that we thank You and praise You, and by the power of Your Spirit that we pray. Amen.